Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. In this podcast, I'm speaking with Marielle Burris, now a multi-year lung cancer survivor. So Marielle, before we talk about lung cancer, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Okay, hello. Thank you, Paul. Originally, I immigrated from Holland. I'm a mother, three children, married, was a nurse. I am now retired and, of course, a smoker. Well, I shouldn't say of course because not everybody smokes, but I sure did. I'm a European girl, and in Europe, a lot of people smoke. <laughs> and when you were diagnosed, Marielle, how was the lung cancer detected? It took a while. I had problems breathing, and uh, so I went to my GP. He uh, listened to my lungs. According to him, the lungs were clear, gave me a puffer. By day three, I really had problems breathing. So um, being a stubborn girl, I just kept putting my wrist under cold water. And eventually at night, I asked my husband to take me to Emerge. And that's what we did. And uh, x-rays were taken. It was noted that there was nothing on the x-rays. Uh, an epinephrine spray, uh, I got scoped, in any event, uh, to no avail. Then uh, I decided to exit the hospital, and uh, I had an appointment with an anesthetist in Carlton Place, and um, he suggested, because I had Strider, he suggested that I see a ear, nose, throat specialist. This doctor scoped me, he could not see anything either, and when I say scope, they only went to vocal cords, no further. And then she suggested two things and told me not to be alarmed, and I, I wasn't. Um, asked me to do a CAT scan and then to see an ear, nose, throat specialist at another hospital in uh, the oncology department. So I said, fine. And the CAT scan showed a tumor in my left upper lobe, and all my lymph nodes were enlarged to the to the extent that my trachea had buckled, which in turn caused stridor. And stridor is the medical term for a narrowing of the big airways when you breathe in and it causes a, a kind of wheezing sound. I guess, Mariel, that the way you describe your, your story is important because there are common symptoms for lung cancer and the most common things people get when they're being diagnosed are they're coughing or they cough up some blood. But the story you tell is a good reminder to all of us that there are many routes to being diagnosed with lung cancer. And for many people, we'll share the experience that you've had of it taking a number of trips to the hospital, a number of different tests, a number of different specialists before it actually gets uh, detected. So looking back now at when you received the diagnosis and then you first met with the specialists, are there things that you would have asked or wanted to know that at the time you wouldn't have known to think to ask, but in hindsight now you've been a multi-year survivor that you would, you would tell other people to ask? I think 
my nursing background is what really helped me. As a student nurse, I had taken care of a patient who had small cell lung cancer. And I remember my clinical instructor at that time telling me, if you don't stop smoking, you may end up with small cell. And I just kind of giggled and I said, you're right. <laughs> that was when I was 37. I was diagnosed at 60 with small cell. And small cell lung cancer is not the most common type of lung cancer. It's about 12 to 15% of lung cancers are that particular subtype, but it can be amongst the more aggressive of lung cancers um, and often presents, though, with the symptoms that, that you had. So, so when you're being diagnosed, and I can imagine that's a very stressful time and challenging and difficult time, who did you turn to for support? Uh, I'm a funny duck. I don't like people pampering over me. Um, so I'm very independent that way. However, my family were very, very supportive. And that's all I wanted, all I needed. They took me to, for a tour at Maplesoft, which is a, a building uh, where you can go for support. And I took the tour, but I had no intention of being part of that process. Uh, I'm very spiritual. And um, my husband would take me for treatments, drop me off at home, and I was very content with that. The last thing I wanted was pity. After all, I smoked 40 years. And I have to say, out of the 40, I really enjoyed quite, quite a few of them. And I spent 20 years trying to quit. So what can I tell you? The day I found out I had lung cancer, I, I, I quit that day because I had people that wanted to take care of me. So how can I be rude and continue smoking? So I stopped. So maybe we can talk about that just a little bit because most people who smoke or quit smoking still don't get lung cancer. So while most people who get lung cancer did smoke at some point in their life, still most smokers might not get lung cancer. Did you feel stigmatized? Did you feel blamed? You kind of hinted that you were blaming yourself. I blame myself, yes. Because as a nurse, I knew <laughs> it's not good for you. However... Coming from Europe, everybody smokes over there, so you don't think twice about it. My father smoked, and I adored my father, and I want to be just like him. And I can remember uh, a party, an anniversary party that we had for my parents. I was 16 years old, and I asked my father, I want to be a big girl. Do you mind if I smoke? And he said, no, you go ahead and have a cigarette. Let's uh, switch to the, the care team who looked after you, the doctors, the nurses, the other healthcare professionals. Looking back over the years that you've been going through this, what would you say were the good bits about that? And what do you think they could have done better? Nothing. They can't do anything better. I felt very supported. I bonded with both the anesthetist and the oncologist and build up a rapport. I trusted them, and I think that's a big thing. And I trusted myself and my my powers within me to heal. And um, 
my thought always was, if I'm meant to go home, then I'm going to go home. And if I'm meant to survive, I will survive. No discussion. I had no fears. So when you say that you you trusted the healthcare team, can you think about what was it they were doing that made you trust them? Was it the approach they took, the words they used, the time they had for you, their specific skills? Was there anything you can put your finger on? or Well, the uh, radiologist, after all my treatments, I mean, she was just a wonderful woman. After my treatments with her, she asked to see me, even though I was all finished. And she wanted to know about Marielle, the woman, not Marielle, the patient. And I was just flabbergasted in her busy clinic that she would take the time out to really get to know me. Um, my oncologist, we always got along really well and uh, kibitz back and forth because I think I kibitz more. Um, but I, I use humor to, to, to help heal. And it takes me, uh, sometimes people when they're under stress, humor can be quite funny or sometimes maybe not. Ask my oncologist. So humor in the cancer clinic is something that I found can be remarkably effective. Uh, putting people at ease, um, building a rapport, um, but you have to use it carefully and there's times to make a joke and times not to. I'm really interested in, in what you're saying there because when we're teaching new medical students uh, how to take a medical history and how to engage effectively with patients, we use this term a therapeutic relationship. And a therapeutic relationship is basically a relationship between the patient and the, the, and the, the caregiver or the physician or, or a nurse based on trust. And that doesn't come without a little bit of effort in uh, teaching people to properly listen, properly take the time. But if you have that therapeutic relationship, then the, the experience for everybody should be more effective. Can you take us through the treatment you actually received, Marielle, and how it affected you? So then we started with um, uh, chemo first. Three days in a row. The first day were two different chemos. Second day, one chemo. Third day, one chemo. Then you waited 20 days. Round two, same scenario. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, two chemos, one chemo, one chemo. Plus, now I'm getting also radiation to my lungs. And that's, the radiation was 30 days straight in a row. I finished my chemo in February end of February. They waited one month, and then I had to do 10 radiations to my brain. That was a little scary, because they put a mask, it's like a second skin almost, on your face, and that gets clamped down. And uh, I'm, I'm a little claustrophobic, <laughs> and when my radiologist told me that some people feel nauseous, I said to myself, oh great, it's not the cancer that's going to kill me. It's the vomit because I'm going to aspirate because in the mask, there's no place for it to go. <laughs> As the radiation was going on, because it's very intimidating, 
um, I was saying my Our Fathers. I wanted to see how many Our Fathers I could say during one session. And it keeps your mind busy. Somebody will choose something else, but that's what I chose. Um, so we got through all that. Uh, the first one to the brain was the hardest because I felt like they misplaced the, the, the radiation, actually, because my forehead was very, very tight. And I remember my brother from Montreal was there at my house. And I said, oh, I don't know if I can do all 10 because right now I feel like they've put a crowbar around my, my head. Anyway, the other very interesting thing that I had experienced was this most fan fantastic blue-purple light. It sounds like the the 10 treatments to the brain were harder than the original rounds of chemotherapy and the 30 radiation to your lungs. You're Is absolutely that, right. Yeah. I have two lungs, or t two lobes, or... or <laughs> Two, <laughs> so two when, sides, but your brain, you only have one brain. <laughs> so when we think about people receiving that long course of chemotherapy and radiation that you went through initially, you know, we think about people feeling sick or vomiting, feeling really tired, hair falling out, losing taste, maybe getting a really sore throat when they're swallowing. Did you experience that or oh, was it? yes. You did? Huh? Oh, for sure. Uh, not so much with the first chemo round, um, but my radiologist organized that I take um, two meds in the morning, once a steroid, once an antiemetic, and bef an hour before the chemo, I take a drug called Amend. I was never nauseous, I never vomited, and I, I pray that anybody that can have this drug can have it because I told even my radiologist, if I was vomiting all the time, I don't know if I'd be interested in living because to me that's not life. Apart from the bit at the end when you're having the brain radiation and you found that really challenging, before that, was there any point that you wondered whether you would get through the treatment or not? Or did you always know? There like was a specific person that... Um, yeah, we, I found annoying, to say the least, because I got through the first part, and then she says, well, it's going to get harder as you go along. Well, I, I don't need to hear that. Let me deal with each se section at a time. Don't tell me that number three or four, you're, oh, you're not going to make it. I don't want to hear it. Just let me get through one, and then let me get through the next one, and that's the way we were. I had my daughter stay with me, and we were we were marking, actually, school papers. <laughs> so one at a time, eh? one round at a time that's would right. be... That's, that's it. That's all you, you can do. Don't look, don't look forward. Just take one day at a time. So when you'd finished the treatment, what did you find were the challenges in the time after that, both physical or psychological, in terms of recovery? I didn't have any psychological issues that I'm aware of. Um, my biggest one was my hair loss because I lost it twice. And it's interesting. When your hair comes back, it was like really gray peach fuzz. And I thought, oh, God, I had really beautiful blonde, thick blonde hair. And to this day, I'm, uh, I'm still coping with my less than thick hair. But wearing a wig full time is not fun either. So that's not even an option. <laughs> I think that was the hardest, that's the hardest thing for me. And, of course, 
uh, I remember at Christmas time, swallowing was horrible. It was like someone had their nails in your throat and they were scraping down. But, and tired, of course you're tired. You're getting all this stuff done to you. But I think I was a real trooper throughout the whole thing with the help of my family, of course. So Marielle, you're now a six-year-plus lung cancer survivor. Now, lung cancer for anyone is a huge life event. Could you maybe tell us what's happened since your diagnosis? Did it change the way you, your outlook on life? And, and what have you been doing with your time as a survivor? It has not changed my outlook on life. For me, it was a journey. And in life, people go through journeys, whether we like it or not. I uh, was glad when the treatments were finished, and I love to travel, and that has, I still do that. I travel a lot. I got to meet two grandchildren and be with them a lot, and the third one's on the way. So, no. And I've always been calm about, like, if I was going to die, I'm going to die. When they come and get you, they're going to get you. And I'm okay with that. I would not be okay if I was lying in a hospital bed for three years, intubated or whatever. But no, it, uh, I, I just have a very calm, which is strange, but I have a very calm uh, way of thinking about that kind of stuff. So Mario was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer, which is a more aggressive subtype of the disease. And unfortunately, it's only detected at an early stage, like in Marielle, about one-third of the time, which makes cure and stories like this less common than we would all like. But there are advances in small cell lung cancer and also in the more common non-small cell lung cancer. So if you do have lung cancer and you do have questions, uh, do ask your healthcare team. One of my colleagues once said to me that when people are facing lung cancer, she had the phrase, living is more than just not being dead. And it sounds like you represent that attitude. I think you're very right. It is what it is. So, Mariel, thank you for being here and for sharing your story today. Thank you it for having me. It really gives insight to me as a professional. Uh, I was struck by the uh, the story that you found the brain radiation far more challenging than the previous bit and I would have thought the other way around um, and you now as a survivor for many years will give a whole lot of encouragement to uh, people listening so thank you very much Lung Cancer Voices was made possible in part by a generous donation from Marielle and Nick Burris thanks to our producer Ryan Mullen please send us your feedback like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan and on Twitter at lungcancer underscore can. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer, or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.